Hello, and welcome to Movies We Dig, a podcast about film, antiquity, and everything in between. I'm Elijah Fleming. I'm Christy Vogler. And I'm Colin McCormick. And today we'll be talking about King Arthur, a 2004 historical adventure film directed by Antoine Fuqua and written by David Franzoni. This one was both fun and strange, I think, in sort of maybe the <laughs> the order in which we watched movies, because I feel like we've almost watched this movie already <laughs> in <Yes>. so many ways. <laughs> yeah, but in in some ways we I think did it wrong in that we watched this one after we watched like The Last Legion and yeah. Centurion. Yes. Because like this movie is 100% like the sort of predecessor of those. But also I think it was good that we watched it because this is a, I think a very natural successor or a a follow-up to Gladiator, not only because it's trying to be Gladiator, but also because (laughs) we've got David Franzoni back at it. Yes. Yes. So I I will maybe like reserve a little bit of my final feelings, but Colin, Christy, do you dig this movie? I do dig this movie. I still do. If I was more familiar with Arthurian legend and it, okay, I do have qualms about it, but like, and if I was more familiar with late Roman going into medieval period archaeological history, I'm sure this movie would upset me a lot more than it does. But to me, this is like our version of telling the Trojan epic, but Arthur version in some way, and all the anachronisms and all of the reimaginings of different characters like just makes me happy and I can go with it. But I think it might be one of those ignorance is bliss sort of things. So I'll leave it at there because we'll have a lot to unpack, especially the archaeological discoveries that inspired this film because I don't know what the hell they're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> I dig this movie, although I do recognize that it is by most metrics not a great film. Although I do think per, the thing I can go through with things I like, performances, generally sort of like them across the board. The plot, yeah, I'm okay. I give you a gentleman six, you know. <laughs> and then... I don't have actually, like Christy, I I don't have many major bones to pick, but I also, I'm not really expecting too much of this movie. In a certain way, like, I recognize that Gladiator is kind of a better movie than this one, but I, in some ways, I almost enjoy this one more, and partially because I don't have as many hangups with this movie as I do with Gladiator, although, as we were talking about the last episode, a lot of my hangups with Gladiator have less to do with Gladiator than the more the way people have responded to Gladiator in the 20 intervening years. So I'll say, like, yes, I I would give it a soft dig. I would give an exploratory excavation of this movie. (laughs) Give it a a test pit of a a A shovel test, if you will. Exactly. I test pit this movie. Um, Or I would. What do you What do you do when you you send like like sonograms or you do like you get underground readings without actually getting radar? Yeah. Yeah. I I would GPR this this movie. (laughs) That's probably more work than a shovel test, to be honest. Just Actually, saying. yes, that's true. Wait, seriously? Yes. yes. Oh gosh, yes. If you, so, it's one thing to just like walk back and forth across the field, scanning the ground, but then like the processing of the images, because all you get is black and white kind of blobby wave things that you have to like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Put and if you're on like an incline, you have to make sure that you're <laughs> like adjusting for the the amount of dirt, and like the GPS is still there, and yeah, it's. A nightmare. I think I was maybe just spoiled by that scene in Jurassic Park where it just sort of seems like they just kind of like give it one big boom and then a perfect picture of of whatever it is underground kind of pops up. <laughs> yeah, it's bullshit. <laughs> yeah, that's not how that works. 
least accurate thing about that movie. <laughs> well, how about you, Lash? I I feel like I keep returning to this movie. I've seen it so many times. I saw this movie in theaters. I was like the excited little 13-year-old who had like a thing for Arthurian legends. Because don't we all, don't all 13-year-olds have that? I'm pretty sure I, I can remember who exactly was in my dad's car with me when we went to go see this movie in theaters. <laughs> yeah. And my dad had actually a great reaction to this movie that I've remembered for posterity that I'm going to share later as we come back around. Oh my God, I can't wait. I just have one like big sticking point with this movie that I kind of can't get over. Can we guess what it is? Please do. I think it prevents me from digging this movie fully. Is it, why is there a noble Roman family living north of the wall? <laughs> That's one of them. That was a big one for me. <laughs> yeah. If this kid is going to be the next Pope, yeah. what the hell is he doing? Yeah. Why Scotland? is he there? <laughs> yeah. I could understand like a wealthy family they were given some land north of the wall and now they need to be to rescue. It's like, no, this guy might be the next flipping Pope. Mm-hmm. Why like, is he like no. so far? It's... Like he is literally outside the periphery of the Roman Empire, but he's mm-hmm. going to be Pope. All right. Yeah. When did this kid impress the Pope so much that like the, never mind. <laughs> Apparently that's not what Elijah has an issue with, but. <laughs> it's not... All right, Christy, that was my guess. Do you have a guess, Christy? That was my guess too, frankly. That is a very well-reasoned sticking point that I do think about. I have a second guess. Okay. Is it Kira Knightley's outfit in The Last Battle? No, love that. Okay. I love it, but it looks so painful. She doesn't have boobs, but like still, what what little she has, they squished. And I'm like, why? Yeah. Look, look female warriors have to wear scantily clad non-armor. Otherwise, how would we know that they're sexy? Obviously, this is just a rule. <laughs> To be fair, that's probably the least sexy warrior woman outfit. You know, Wonder Woman. I mean, but why can't they just wear armor like the rest of them? Because that would make sense. Because <laughs> that would make sense. Again, I think we're like wanting too much of this movie. Um, but my main like issue, which just sounds really stupid now, is that like all of the knights of the round table are Sarmatians. Okay, yeah, that's probably... That makes what? Sense. <laughs> what? This is probably a good point for us to kind of rewind and just get, like, the premise of this movie and kind of the origin, which, as I was reading, the way he describes it, Dave Franzoni, like, read this fact somewhere that there might have been... So, like, the Sarmatians are these people, the sort of these steppe horsemen people that probably lived in, like, Ukraine and surrounding areas in the 4th, 5th centuries, and then came into conflict with the Romans. And I guess Dave Franzoni, the writer, he's hot off Gladiator. He's looking for the next thing. And he sort of came in somehow across his plate that there was like a group of these Sarmatian warriors transplanted into Britain as part of the Roman military apparatus. And then I don't know if this was him or whether he sort of read this also that grafting this onto Arthurian legend, which sort of, you know, most texts sort of talk about Arthur as some kind of warrior who defended against the Saxon invasion in the fifth or so century CE. And I think it's the Historia Britonum, which I did go and take a little quick peek at just trying to remember <laughs> well and supposedly this my perusal of wikipedia so they don't take me at my word at this but supposedly it's called the sarmatian hypothesis that was posited by c scott littleton and Anne C. thomas in 1978 but most scholars don't agree with it because there's just not a- enough evidence to support such a claim and that's why i, I like the opening title card scene whatever is like new archaeological evidence 
suggests this is the real story. And I'm like, what archaeological evidence are we? And so I was researching, it's like, what was coming out in the early 2000s that they're like, is it they're finding Sarmatian cultural artifacts near Hadrian's wall and they're running with it? Or like, what? I can't <laughs> well, figure it out. The whole, the whole idea of there being a Sarmatian auxiliary unit in the Roman army is totally legit. And like, probably is at some point true because the Romans did that all over the place. They had random auxiliary units from all of the places that they traveled to. Um, It's just sort of like the empire thing to do, right? It's like you bond with the locals and you sort of learn each other's fighting styles. Persians were doing that stuff and, you know, they had units from every part of the sort of Persian world or, or, and even the Greeks after them. Like it's a thing. Totally. And so I would have, really loved if this was actually the story of a Sarmatian unit in Britain. That, I think, would have been really cool. But that's not what this is. <laughs> I think they should have completely ignored this, the Sarmatian element to it if they were just going to give them all Arthurian names. Like, they're Galahad and Gwen and Dagonet and Lancelot. Like, those are the traditional names that are like in the canon, whatever, those aren't Sarmatians. <laughs> like what? Yeah. I feel like we're trying to smash two things together and I would rather see one or the other. I would love to see the Sarmatian story, but that's not what this is. Maybe this just bothered me. I don't know what, what you all thought about it, but like it maybe bothered me just a little bit that if such a big sticking point that these guys are neither Roman nor Britain, they are sort of outside, they're strangers in a strange land serving a strange master. You know, they're not invested necessarily in this cause, but it, I don't know if it bothered you as much as it might have bothered me, but that like, they didn't really seem to be distinguished in any sort of telling way from any of the other, like, shy of just being constantly reminded that they are Sarmatians, there was nothing to necessarily distinguish them from, say, like Arthur or the other Romans, or, you know, everybody just was British. Yep. (laughs) This leads me to, I'll save it for the end, but like what I sort of, my alternative, like what I would have wanted from this movie. But that's sort of like, they didn't seem to be in any, aside from a sort of passing comment about how they've maintained their, their original religion, or like they worship their own, their gods, the, like the, the Sarmatian knights don't seem in any way distinguished from anyone. Like there's nothing particularly Sarmatian-y about them. Not at all. I will admit that is an issue I had with the entire film is like, I have no idea of the distinctions that are being made here. Saxons, okay. Wodes wasn't a real term. Nope. So you have a bunch of Celts and sometimes mentioned of Britons and like admittedly I I had to like look up British timeline and when different groups of people inhabited the island again because it's been a while since Vinland Saga that I had looked all that up. And so, you know, there's like the farmers are Britons. Yeah. And then the warriors are the Wodes, but really they're all Celts, right? Well, I don't know. Uh, and, <laughs> and my other thing is, I love that Latin is being spoken by the priests and Celtic is being spoken occasionally amongst the Wodes. And then everyone else is speaking English so we can understand what's going on. And... Towards the end of the film, my hypothesis shift is like, okay, Wodes are pagans and non-Christians, and everyone else is Christian and or Saxon. Okay. Maybe I'll just jump right to it. Like what I kind of wanted at the end, where at the end it's kind of this this alliance between 
the woes or like you know these north of the wall non-romanized celts and and arthur and, and his six friends <laughs> seven or however many there are at that point but what i sort of would have wanted to see if i could have gotten you know in there in the editing room is that it should have been like an alliance between like the three sort of main groups where we have north of the wall celts i.e like the picks the woes whatever you want to call them the south of the wall celts i.e like the romano british like the britons who have been living in roman society for the last couple odd hundred hundred odd years and who are sort of celtic sort of historically but are sort of romanized and then maybe a couple of romans who are hanging on or something like that like just rome you know maybe members of the army or something like that who could be from wherever but for all intents and purposes, they're Romans who are hanging around. And then the Sarmatian, you know, so this kind of like three-way alliance, you know, and that's going to form the new modern Britain, you know, which is this sort of layering of like Celtic and Roman. And then eventually it will also be Saxon and Dane and a bunch of other things. And it would have all made sense if not for the random Roman estate north of the wall, where again, you have to question like, what are the actual dynamics here? Like who is who in this situation? That's the thing that bothered me most about this movie where – so just to like – for those of – for any listeners who maybe haven't seen this movie in you know the 17-odd <laughs> years since it's come out, uh, the first two acts are largely dedicated to the Sarmatian knights, the auxiliary under Arthur, these sort of Sarmatian soldiers who have a Roman commander and they, they think their 15 years of military service is up and they get to go home and they're given one last mission to go north of the wall – and rescue a noble Roman family before these invading Saxons get there. Which is like on service, like that's a good sort of hook for a plot. But the problem I have with that sort of the noble Roman family north of the wall is that it's not even that it doesn't make sense historically. It doesn't even make sense in the logic of the movie. Like the movie is very clear that it's north of the wall is no man, you know, that's we don't go there. It's it's wild, wild country that the movie makes very clear. But then it's also like, why is such an important guy and his family living up in the, like in order to get there, Arthur has to navigate through these, these enemy woes. So like, how did the guy and his dopey guards get up there in the first place? Well, I like the premise too, that the son is the godson of the Pope and beloved by the Pope. But like when they get there, the father of Electo is just like, this is land granted to us from the Pope. And I'm like, so the Pope hates the father, but loves the son. I don't understand. I know. It's like, why'd you get this land out here yeah. in no man's land where it's terrible? And I think I know what the root of the problem is. The problem is Hadrian's Wall, which is they 100%, you know, it's going to be set in Dark Age Britain or Roman Britain, and it's going to feature Celts. So like they got to do the wall. They, in fact, they even built an actual replica of the wall. This whole film was filmed in Ireland, but they built like a kilometer of wall, pretty much like a, a replica. Like I, I, heard, I read that they took like casts of the bricks at Hadrian's Wall in Scotland and sort of so all the bricks are like the right size and things like that. And so they wanted there to be the Hadrian's Wall, but then that sort of forces – it contorts the plot into like, well, the guy's got to live. They got to go north of the wall and then, then you run into them. Because then the lesser order issue is like, well, why are the Saxons invading north of the wall? Why don't they just land nope. south of the wall? Which is yeah. what they did in real life. <laughs> and so what it probably should have been more like is like the Saxons are coming in and they're taking over Roman territory and we need to go get this guy out. And he actually does live in like Roman Britain. Just do away yeah, with the wall. That would have 
fixed a lot of things. <laughs> but then the plot of the movie can't happen. And again, you can't have your set piece at the wall. Well, what was cool, what I was focusing more on was the fort that they all go to just near the wall. And I learned that's based off Vindolanda, where we've done a lot of cool archaeology there. And we know like there's the presence of women there. And we're really trying to reestablish what life in that particular fortress was like. So it's like, you're right, you could get rid of Hadrian's wall and just have this well-known Roman fortress be and like be yeah. this control of like, all right, we need to go get this guy out in the countryside, bring him here to safety in the fortress. Oh no, the fortress is under attack now. We all need to band together. Yeah, yeah, that would have totally worked. I like that. And there's so much material to work with at Vindolanda and all of the things that are usually disintegrated by like drier weather have actually been preserved at Vindolanda, which I love. Like all in the mud, you have socks and shoes, leather and cloth and wooden tablets and all of this stuff. So there's just so much to work with there that that would have been really, really fun. It reminds me of that line. It's like, I hate this island. When it's not raining, it's snowing. It's snowing. <laughs> I mean, they're not wrong on that. No. True. <laughs> yeah. So this sort of leads me to another thing I want to, to talk about with this movie, which is very much like of its era. We're in the early 2000s. Gladiator has just been a huge critical and commercial success. And so there's, a, there's this huge push in movies to get at that like, like we even sort of dubbed one of our sort of mini series about this, the hit, the gritty historical, there was a whole wave of like, we got to get down to the truth and the nitty gritty. And it's not just in these sort of historical epics. It's also like, I guess we're maybe a year or two out from the born identity, like even like all across sort of movie spectrum, we're moving yeah. into this like gritty dark realism. We're a couple of years away from dark night, but that's going to be very much of that era or like the born saga, you know, everything is dark and grim when they redo James Bond, like when is the first Daniel Craig James Bond? I was in high school. I was in high school. I want to say 2006 or seven. Casino Royale. Hold up. I'm pulling it up. 2006. I'm not saying I'm the smartest guy in the world, but like. <laughs> oh, I did hear that Daniel Craig was up for Arthur in this movie. Ooh, he would have been an interesting Arthur. I know. But I do think went. Clive Owen did a good job, but like yeah. James Bond instead. Yeah. <laughs> I like Clive just fine. But yeah, so like that whole intro, like the title, I mean, this movie comes out the same year as Troy, which is, again, doing the exact same thing where it's like, we got to get down to the real gritty, mm -hmm. historical, violent, which then makes sense where they lead. So this movie, so David Franzoni writes the script. Jerry Brockheimer's producing it. He's also, I mean, he's also kind of hot. You know, he's on top of the world now because Pirates of the Caribbean has come out, you know, which is the biggest thing ever, which is, again, hence Keira Knightley being in this movie. Yep, yep, yep. And and Jerry Brockheimer brings in. Fuqua is one of Brockheimer's guys where, because Fuqua directed the, the music video for Gangster's Paradise, which accompanied the movie Dangerous Minds that Brockheimer produced. And that's how Fuqua and so like really the we have Gangster's Paradise to thank for this movie. Love it. But Fuqua directed, so he directed that music video, which got him in where Jerry Brockheimer sort of like identified him early as young up and coming talent. And then Fuqua had just done Training Day with Denzel Washington and Ethan Hawke, which is like a gritty hardcore movie, you know, where Denzel Washington pulls the car over in the middle of the intersection and makes Ethan Hawke smoke PCP. <laughs> and so in that, when you're thinking about it, like in that context, in that mindset, it makes perfect sense why they, because on the sort of surface, if you look at Fuqua's filmography, it's a lot of crime thrillers and action. And this one seems to stick out a little bit. But in a, another way, this makes complete sense why they would have pulled Fuqua to do this, because it's like, we want a gritty, 
contemporary minded like hardcore action adventure so like let's get the training day guy although i would really have loved if arthur pulled one of like lancelot aside and was like you're gonna smoke this <laughs> but i hate lancelot in this we'll talk about that more later i'm sure but yeah i'm sure you'll talk about this more colin but like the other factor here which i didn't realize but makes perfect sense because i was obsessed with kira knightley mm-hmm. as Absolutely. part of pirates of the caribbean Yes. And this was all around that same time. So there's a Disney factor here because Disney's involved. Yes. And I think Hans Zimmer also is doing the music again. Yeah. And Fuqua in interviews since then has talked about that he's like not – he's lukewarm on this movie but leaning disappointed. And he, there is a director's cut that's a bit bloodier that's kind of more in line with his vision. And because like he wanted it more more – he wanted a hard R movie. And yeah. Disney pushed really hard for PG-13. And there's like, I was watching an interview where, you know, so like part of like one of the changes is it ends up being they make it sort of Lancelot is narrating the whole movie. That sort of happened late in the game, which is why I like you completely forget that like Lancelot is the sort of lead in narrator. I had completely forgot. I did too. Yeah. And why also the movie ends with a wedding and there was this great, I was watching an interview where Fuqua was like, yeah, they wanted like, (laughs) you know, an uplifting. And so we ended with this wedding, which is. I guess uplifting and like the way he says it i was just like oh man <laughs> or you can tell i'm mean, like it's like antoine man like speak your truth i want to know what you really think about this or he's like i want i want him to just go out and be like like maybe it's been enough time but i want to get the real deal or fuqua is just like man f- this ending like <laughs> that wedding i wanted limbs severed and like i wanted hearts broken yeah, I, well, I did read somewhere that they did edit a lot of the blood out because it was originally filmed to be that sort of more Troy-esque, I guess, with like mm-hmm. a lot of the blood spatter and like the super intense violence. And I think I would have liked that movie better, maybe. Yeah. This was rated R. I think so too. Well, and someone pointed out like already with Arthurian legend and Disney being involved, this was one of the reviews. It was like, no one at Disney would greenlight an old-fashioned talky love triangle with a hero who dies and an adulterous heroine who ends up in a nunnery. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, it's really Truth. funny to think about this has been a Disney-fied version of Arthurian legend, but that's pretty spot on. It is. Yeah. Yeah. But also, this movie, I feel like, has almost nothing to do with Arthurian legend. There is maybe a glancing acknowledgement of the sort of Lancelot Guinevere love triangle in that there's some glances exchanged between the characters. Yep. And the names are all Knights of the Round Table yep. names. But outside of that, like this isn't. Well, okay. Merlin, <laughs> a.k.a. Stannis Baratheon. Wait, that's him? Oh, yes. Okay. Yes. Okay, wait, wait, wait. What is your guys' default Merlin like when you think of Merlin what is the first representation of that character that comes to mind like Disney sword, sword and stone. stone yes of course it is <laughs> yeah <laughs> I can't get it out of my head Merlin is actually one of the things I don't like about this movie I but we, we can come back to that and apparently Merlin's a late addition to the Arthurian legend anyway he comes much later from most of the original story so yeah I don't know what else to say about him, but yeah, well, because this movie doesn't really have much to say about him. He's like kind he of an after. He's do anything. Yeah, he he he's barely a character. He's just sort of like the leader of the the Wodes, like whoever they are. And he has one conversation with Arthur where he's like, "You're Britain too," and like maybe we should. 
work yeah. together. I had literally forgotten that he had lines. I thought that he just like stood in the forest and looked scary. Which he does very well yeah. upon a rewatch. And I was like, oh, he does talk. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I feel like they could have used that character to better work with the the different factions if we're, you know, trying to band together to fight the Saxons. Like Merlin could have been a bigger part. His literal device is to give Arthur a backstory for how he got Excalibur. Which then doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't. Like, he, I actually didn't need Excalibur explained at all. It, no. His role in the story is very sort of perfunctory. And Fuqua has talked about Excalibur where he says something about, like, it's not that, like, Excalibur is actually a magic sword. It's more of, like, a metaphor for, like, coming of age and being ready and overcoming your demons or whatever it is. Which, great. Love mm-hmm. that. But, like, yeah. I feel like then we didn't need the nod to it, I guess. So we get like an initial battle where we introduce Arthur and his knights where we have almost like a a Last of the Mohican scene where the the caravan with the bishop is getting attacked by by picks. And then Arthur and his knights come and save the day. And we meet Bishop Germanus, who's just like a sneaky, oily little prick who's there to basically free the knights, but really he's there to give them their last and most dangerous mission. And and he kind of represents like everything that's wrong with Rome Mm -hmm. slash Catholicism. Yeah. And once again, like the the hero Clive Owen here, but like could have been Russell Crowe basically is like (laughs) has this very idealized version of Mm -hmm. what Rome is, but now also like what Christianity means Mm -hmm. um, and has this like kind of fun, you know, equality bent, which I think actually works really well with his idea of the round table. Yeah. um, Which is like the, you know, equality in this room and we have no secrets and blah, blah, blah. And I like that he was then disillusioned at the end that there was some progression in that in his feelings because i i don't know i feel like in gladiator it almost didn't get quite the he was always disillusioned and so there's like no growth or no change into a rome yeah well in the very beginning and then but it becomes very much not about rome for maximus yeah yeah i guess that's true yeah, it, and I think that's something important to consider here is because, like, we are still looking at Rome is, like, talked about as this big thing, but also a place that you can go to. And there's no indication if Arthur has actually ever been to Rome, but he talks about it as if it's the most amazing thing ever seen. It seems to be that he hasn't, like, because it's the idea is that his mother was, was a Briton right. and his father presumably was, like, a Roman military officer or something mm-hmm. like that. Because I think at one point, the Electo kid, he says something where it's like, the Rome you're imagining, like, doesn't, doesn't exist. exist. Yeah. Yeah. And they executed your teacher, like, years ago or something. Apparently is historically not true, but... Well, Pelagius lived, like, 20 years before this is supposed to happen, right? Mm-hmm. I was looking this up. Well, first of all, Pelagius, a guy I had never heard of, this movie is teaching me things, but real guy, had a sort of... Here- it's now... St- <laughs> my fun fact, it is still considered heretical. <laughs> but Pelagius had this Pelagism. Um, he was a British priest. Apparently, St. Augustine of Hippo, who's a very important early church leader, not a big fan of Pelagius. Uh, he was excommunicated and condemned and, and was killed, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I don't know if they actually if his teachings actually involve like equality for all. They had to do a lot of I was reading his a lot of his teachings had to do with like original sin and like that were actually not born with original sin. Which is the kind of stuff, if you ever take like a course or you study uh, late antiquity, there are so many of these like breakaway 
sects of Christianity that get like really into like like Arianism that's all debating about like the nature, the tripartite nature of the Godhead. And then they get excommunicated and all these like wild, they just seems like the people are going crazy and like blaspheming each other and killing each other over like these strange little technicalities. But I don't know. What do I know? Yeah, no, that's, I remember taking a Byzantine history class in like what the Council of Nicosia. Mm -hmm. I still don't understand the argument being made of the nature of the Holy (laughs) Spirit that literally displaced hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah. Yeah. The iota (laughs) of difference. (laughs) Quite literally. Yeah. Yeah. No, my biggest thing that I kind of liked was that all the real Romans were assholes and like, Mm. yes. And especially with the bishop, like getting that Byzantine aspect going of like, they stand on ceremony, there's all these steps, you have to like look a certain way. So you're, you're kind of getting that connotation and like, no one really likes the Romans, but then you have this question of on the periphery, like, but we're fighting for Rome. And what is the meaning of that? Like, what are we actually hoping to get out of it? Like, yes, these men want their freedom, but they also want the last 15 of their lives to actually have meant something like it wasn't a total waste, which I thought that premise, whether or not they're starvations or not, I thought that was really cool of just, and I liked the, after the the first battle, they're all riding back on horseback. It's like, 15 years left. What are you guys going to do? Like, mm-hmm. going back to Sarmatia, you've got um, Boris is planning to stay and marry the girl he's had, like, <laughs> not quite sure how many children with. And be mayor of his own village. Yeah. At least 10 children. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought that was, that was actually really um, probably the part I really liked about this is like, okay, yes, we're all fighting for this capital city we've never seen before. We've only heard about, but like, what does that really mean to us? And like, what, what is going to be the impact on our lives once our military service is over? And I thought that was a really cool aspect that this movie was exploring. I don't know how well they did it, but it, it, it was interesting to me. I liked that. And I, I agree with that. And I think at the end, after sort of Arthur's disillusionment with the idea of Rome, he stays to fight to like not protect the idea of Rome, but at least my understanding was to like protect the people that were there. Mm-hmm. And it's like it doesn't matter who they are it's like these are people and we need to protect them and i really liked that as a as a character motivation for him yeah it was just like yeah i am trying to do the right thing by what i like the teachings that i you know have deeply deeply felt and you know i'm gonna do my best um even if that means i'm gonna die and it sort of seemed ridiculous at the time. He's like the one guy on the hill in his armor. <laughs> but I liked that as a motivation as I'm protecting these people no matter who they are. Yeah. And here's like just the movie is missing like a scene or a couple, even just a couple of shots is like we don't really ever see the people in question. Like we see yes. the woads, I right. guess. But most most of the woads we see are when they're are like warriors. We don't. And we, we get passing glimpses, I think, maybe of like regular villagers and farmers. And I think at one point, Stellan Skarsgård says, like, there's just some do- a few dozen villagers back there. Like, I'm going to slaughter your people. But mm-hmm. just in like the text and the visuals that the movie is showing, it kind of seems like Arthur is fighting over an empty field. Yes. <laughs> I think that's why I like the fortress so much as a setting. Like Vindolanda, like I'm going to call it Vindolanda. They didn't ever give the fortress a name. But like Boar's wife serving people everyone kind of taking military and civilians she sings a song that like speaks to everyone there 
to me, that was like one of the coolest moments of like, what would have these blended communities look like? The first 30 minutes of this movie, I think, are doing great work, like mm-hmm. setting the stakes, introducing us to the characters, like setting all those tensions ab- up about how these characters are fitting into the world. Like, Because I think the movie really gets bogged down in the rescue mm-hmm. plot line. Mm-hmm. But like, it seems like what we're missing is a scene where the the people in the fort or the garrison, I mean, some of the, there probably would be people there and some of them are just civilians or some of them are like, hey, we have families here you know, we're very much sort of rooted in here. And like the Romans are like, okay, we're leaving. But like, and some of the Romans, like maybe the officers are like, yeah, we're going to go back to Rome now. But there's other people who's like, look, we're like entrenched here. Like we can't just pack up and leave. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And so that's where, you know, the, uh, maybe some Roman soldiers stay back or there's sort of uh, Romanized Britons or, or whoever. And then that's like where you get this sort of this, this what's the word I'm looking for? Like mosaic of people. Absolutely. Yeah. And the character that I'm thinking of, so there's this character, Joel's, played by Sean Gilder, who's like their, I don't know how, he's like their squire or something. Mm-hmm. He's like the guy that kind of shows up and he's the one that like, he's like, the bishop can plop his holy ass wherever he likes or something like that. <laughs> and that guy's like kind of in the movie, but also not really in the movie. But like he, to wow. me, would be like the perfect vehicle for like, as like a sort of Roman, like he, I think is a Roman. It's unclear. He's either a Roman that's kind of invested in Britain or he's a Briton that's joined the Roman apparatus. Like he's one of those two things. Mm-hmm. And he would have been the character that would have been like, yeah, like there's, you know, so there's families here, there's civilians here, there's X, Y, and Z, which I, I can't believe I'm saying this, but you know what movie kind of did this? The Last Legion. <laughs> well, I don't know if you you heard this or like – because I didn't watch that movie with you guys. so But there is a scandal involved with this film because the Italian historian and novelist Valerio Massimo Manfredi claimed mm-hmm. that the movie was almost a plagiarism of his 2002 novel, The Last Legion. And he blames its mixed reviews as like what kind of mired down his film, ad- the film ad- adaptation of his novel um, for so long and then just didn't have a good audience when it was released in 2007. So like, I mean, it also, it didn't have a good script or a good yeah, director bad. or a good cast either, but like, <laughs> well, it had a good cast, but it had a, it had a poorly used cast. So don't watch it is what I, it was I'm, such a bad movie. It was so bad. Yeah. It's, it's painfully bad. So maybe Manfredi should be thankful that this came out and was <laughs> imitating his art. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but I I agree. Like Spartacus also really had that sort of lens focused in on the impact that sort of the wider world's movings and doings would have on just the people who were there. Mm -hmm. And moving in the ancient world, just like today, is so hard. It's like, how are you Mm -hmm. supposed to pick up your entire life? And I think maybe Boars and his 10 plus children are a good example of this. It's like if you have a family with someone who is from this land, are you just going to leave all of your mm-hmm. wife and like 10 plus children? <laughs> or like, and he's not, right? Like he plans to stay. And as a lot of veterans did mm-hmm. stay where mm-hmm. they were posted. Yeah. Um, or got land somewhere nearby or something like that. So yeah, I think that that would have been a helpful view. Random side thought, because I think Colin commented on the fact that uh, the love triangle between Guinevere, Arthur, and Lancelot never played out. It's like, that's because it was happening with Boars and his wife the whole time, to the point he's like holding his infant child. It's like, nah, you're all Boars. 
Should we talk about the knights? Because I think this might be a good time to talk about the knights. So yeah, yes. Who's everyone's favorite knight? Matt Mickelson. <laughs> Tristan used to be my favorite. And I, I kept having flashbacks of like thinking the Falcon was going to die. And I was like, why am I having these flashbacks? It's like, because that's what happened in the mummy. Yeah, that's you're thinking of the Mummy Returns. The mummy. Or, or, oh, which, by the way, have you seen Oded Fair? It had like a like a TikTok or something he put out where he's got like a chicken. He's like, "Fly, Horace!" <laughs> oh, you gotta, we gotta find it. It's fantastic. He's like going around on his farm, like basically reenacting scenes from the Mummy Returns, and it's so funny. <laughs> oh my god, my heart, I can't take it. Yeah, so I, I had that moment with Tristan. It's like I really liked him, and like he had so few lines that it was really good but this time i watched it i'm like no i'm here for boars like yeah i, I was questioning first do i like him he's kind of like your because very... well, at first he, you know he has problematic language in the workplace where he keeps telling his co-workers <laughs> about his penis which mm-hmm. is like we got to get hr in here yeah yep. but then you when you get back i'm like you know what actually boars is kind of great like he's a family man he's participating in child care he seems you know him he and his wants wife to get into a... local government mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> he's got a brother with like the top yeah. okay and what Are brothers yeah so so it's ray stevenson and then the guy who plays boars is ray something else they were both named ray ray stevenson and then ray winstone is boars yes you got the two ray stevenson i mean ray winston great british character actor every role he ever plays he never loses his like cockney accent (laughs) he's always like yeah i'm boars i'm like i'm they never change. Even in he was in Black Widow, and he's like, "Yeah, I'm Boaz. I'm a Russian super oligarch. I just talk like this." Well, my, my, I think my favorite moment is like when they're told they're, they have to go on this one last mission, and like Boaz is like pissed off and like angry, and they ask him, "It's like, are you going? Of course I'm going. You all die without me. I'm just saying what you all want. I'm just saying." I think he turned in my favorite performance of the movie. The moments like when after after Ray Stevenson dies, mm-hmm. and he he's like he's already free. Yeah. All that stuff. Mm-hmm. And then and Ray Stevenson also, who is the origin of the great River of Ham story. Yes. You know, cause cause he's uh what's his name? Volstag the the voluminist yeah. or I forget what his epithet <laughs> is in the Thor movies, Volstag the the mighty. Yeah. Well he plays a really different character here and I really like it. Yeah. He's him. like a like a like he barely speaks. Yeah. The one line that gets me is when he's in the prison and he pulls out the little boys like, Do not fear me. Yes, I have it. Also, great, great line reading. Apparently, it's endearing because that boy loved that man. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Can you imagine being pulled out by Ray Stevenson? And thinking, you will not fear me. Um, <laughs> yes, sir. Okay. Yeah, because he's he's like the he's like the dutiful, quiet one. Well, and he's such the opposite character. I my default Ray Stevenson is HBO's Rome, which he mm-hmm. plays like a very opposite, like very yeah. boisterous, loud. He's Titus Polo. He's, he's like Titus you Polo. Know, <laughs> yeah, hard, hard drinking, womanizing, partying. And so this kind of like quiet, stoic, like extremely caring. Like he was, you know, sleeping in that infirmary wagon, like with the people that they rescued. He was like mm-hmm. sacrificed himself on the on the ice lake to save everybody like great great ray stevenson love it who else we have so actually i kind of like this this is maybe the the unpopular choice but i do kind of like joe edgerton as gawain he he has less of a sort of clearly defined character but i just sort of like him maybe i just like his look yeah the look works i agree Mm -hmm. 
He has, yeah. It's a good look. And and then we got Hugh Dancy as Galahad. He's like, I he could disappear from the movie mm-hmm. and I wouldn't know it yeah. for me. I don't know. I mean, it's hard to carve out because like Boars has like such a very sort of loud personality. Dag- Dagonet has kind of his own thing going. Tristan very much stands out because he's like yeah. a samurai <laughs> yes. or something. Like he's just like weird. Middle. Yeah. <laughs> They're like so. Mads is making like so many choices because like I remember when I first saw this as like a teenager, Mads was the one that stuck out to me because mm-hmm. like this guy rules. He's got a bird, like he's his, got the bow. Yeah, yeah, he's like the bow. He seems to be doing all the legwork. Like he's their tracker expert because yeah. Arthur keeps going like go scout ahead. Mm-hmm. He's got face tattoos. Everything about him is like this guy f- <laughs> rips. He's the one that seems like the least Roman. Like I could see the knight being a non-Roman. Like yes, mm-hmm. was yes. from somewhere yeah. else. And even like his his the armor at the end, their armor that they wear is like vaguely like Central Asian. Like yes. he's got almost like a Mongol esque or like a Russian kind he of looking looks hat like going on. That could have been actually Sarmatian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, like yeah, yeah. Like yeah, they should have been just like a bunch of Russians. No, I think Lancelot is perhaps the weakest. Yeah. Yes. I don't like we him. We should talk about Lancelot. I Nobody like likes him. him. I don't he he is the one that maybe it's the goatee. I just don't know what they were going for because they, he's not a likable character. Yeah. He's like sleazy is the sort of Yeah. But there's nothing redeeming out of that sleaze. Like he doesn't rise above it in any way. Like he's he's Tony Stark, but take away the charm yes. in a certain weird way. Well, because like his opening line narration, you, like when he's explaining why the Sarmatians have to fight the Romans, is like common is better they had died that day, and that like really sums up his attitude for the whole damn thing. It's just yeah. like we should have never been here in the first place. It's all stupid. You're all mm-hmm. stupid. Everything sucks, and I'm mad about yeah. it. The whole movie. He's like an angsty teenager. Yeah, he he's also he's the one that's sort of most dissatisfied with their station and is like very pissy about it. Which I think is important to consider that being conscripted into an army, you do have to have that like naysayer resistor of like this sucks. This shouldn't be how we are treated. And yeah, better that the Sumerians had just died that day than to be basically enslaved by the Roman army. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an important viewpoint to present out there is this like mix of like all of these people creating the Roman collective. Not everyone's going to be like all for what's going on, but it just the way it was depicted through him just made you like and he was the only one really to voice it in that way um, that you just he's just not likable as a result. So it's like the message was important, but it didn't play out well. And he's yeah, he's the one that openly butts heads with Arthur in a lot of scenes. And then again, there's like the hintings of that there's like a romantic jealousy aspect going on, perhaps, or something of that nature, though that never really bears fruit. But it sort of seems like like he sort of seems positioned like he would be like Arthur's second in command or something like that. Like he's the chief knight. I don't know. But his character sort of never really, I think Christy was saying, like, it, it, there's, no, there's not as much to endear us to him. You know, like he maybe could have been a character where like, he is Arthur sort of second in command and sort of outwardly facing his public face. He's like, I'm going to do what Arthur says and put, and then when they have these backroom conversations, he's like, I got all these doubts and and grievances, man, or something like that. Whereas like here, he's like almost openly hostile Mm -hmm. and rebellious. Mm -hmm. And and like why he goes along with everyone else is like not fully. Yeah. 
but it's also in a way that just isn't constructive, right? It's like he he voices all of his doubts, but I feel like there wasn't ever the like the like okay, how do we make it work sort of moment where it's like constructive criticism, but it's still like we're we're trying to work together to save our our little found family here, mm-hmm. right? And I'm thinking also just in the kind of to, to sort of think meta textually or something, because like this era was also the year where I think Hollywood was trying to make Yon Grufford Gruffith. I forget how you, he's Welsh. Welsh. I, I'm probably I'm, mis, I'm mispronouncing his name, but I think it's Yon Gruffith, the leading man, because he was Mr. Fantastic mm-hmm. in the Fantastic Four movies, yep. which never really I mean, not it wasn't that the, the movie didn't succeed or fail necessarily on his shoulders, but like. For whatever reason, he he just never really popped as a Hollywood leading man. And I think he's mostly been like character actors since then. I got to look up his IMDb, see what he's been in. Because he seems to have. He's like one of those faces that you recognize from like, mm-hmm. oh, he was he was there. He's like in Titanic. He's the he's the guy in the rescue boat. Yeah, yeah. But I think of like the other people to come out of the like the their first go at the Fantastic Four is what like Chris Evans and Jessica Alba is that who? Yeah, yep, Jessica Alba is in, and then and um Chickless who was in the Shield for a while. Yeah, so like other people that have gone on to be rather successful while he yeah. has remained Language. somewhat in the background. Yeah, I'm looking at his IMDb. Yon has been doing steady work okay. for since then. He's in well, a lot of, been in a lot of a lot of TV. He was in Forever. He was in, he's in The Reunion, the TV miniseries. He's in Harrow. He's in Liar. I think a lot of British television series. Okay. Good for him. But he never really, like, ascended into leading man. Yeah. Dumb. In a way that I think this movie was maybe potentially a stepping stone for that. Mm-hmm. In a way that it maybe kind of was for Clive Owen. Although Clive Owen's, if I've got a good grasp on Clive Owen's career. I think my favorite Clive Owen is, like, not mainstream Clive Owen. Mm-hmm. Shoot him up, Clive Owen. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he had Children of Men, which is fantastic. Which was a great but, movie. And it was so yeah. perfect in. And I just, I don't know. It's like a different level of movie, right? <laughs> yeah. And then we're also, we're, we're also leading on Kira Knightley, who, as I was reminded, and it kind of maybe spoiled the movie a little bit for me. She's 18 in this movie. It's weird. It's weird. And I don't like it because Clive Owen is like 40. Clive is almost 21 uh, years her senior. Be serious. That's almost accurate for the ancient world anyway. I mean, yeah, yeah cringeworthy here, but. But it still <laughs> made me uncomfortable. <laughs> it's, well, the thing is like if you didn't know it you would never suspect it necessarily. Yeah, right. And maybe it's because we were younger at the time when we saw this movie, so it didn't jump out to well, me that she'd already done figures would she'd be. She'd already done Pirates of the Caribbean, at least the first one, right? Yeah. Yeah, she was, which which she was 17 in, which mm-hmm. is also, like, when you think about but it. Like, but, like, Orlando Bloom is much closer in age to Keira Knightley than Clive Owen. Yeah. Not as much as you'd think, I think. Yeah, really? no, not that much, though. Like, So Keira Knightley was born in 85. I just know this. Um, Orlando Bloom <laughs> was born in 77. Okay. Um, so he's 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 eight years her senior. Okay, okay. So okay, she he, she was weird. seventeen and he she he was twenty five. I Pirates. always bring this up like for age differences, but the most recent Phantom of the Opera, where Christine was like sixteen, and Gerard Butler and what's his face were like in their thirties, and that always mm-hmm. freaks me out. Yeah. So it's just it's it's weird. Why I don't know. Why do the actresses always have to be crazy, well, Kira, crazy young? Well, Kira Knightley was really 
I mean, yeah, in general, we can question that. I know she was like that. She, the only thing she I was really big before that was Bendit Like Beckham. That's and I love mm-hmm. Bendit Like Beckham. So seeing yes. her in Pirates was really exciting. That's what got me excited to see this movie was I loved Kira Knightley and sure. seeing what she does. And I think, I'm sure that's what Disney was kind of trying to feed off of is like, well, everyone will know her as Elizabeth from So yeah. Will Come for That, yeah. which got me for sure. I like otherwise it's like this you know the same problem we had with gladiator you don't really have a female character other than kira knightley present it's true <laughs> and guinevere is kind of a weird character in and of us because there's there's like things about guinevere that confuse and confound me a little bit i agree i think on a rewatch this time i i just watched this last night and i was like what what is she doing where did she get that dress like, Why who, is, like who is she that's <laughs> Just like who is she? Like, like they say, like she's a woad. Like she's some north of the wall Celt. So at some point, she got captured by that. What's his name? Honorius, the the yeah. the wealthy Lester, Roman. Got. Yeah, and was in creepy pagan jail. Mm-hmm. Yeah, who we can assume Honorius that the the guy the Pope hates because he gave him the worst plot of <laughs> land in the world. Uh, so she's in pagan jail, mm-hmm. and then she's rescued by Arthur, who like resets her fingers. And but then later, because like I think like there was like there's like a missing line or like a missing scene or something where it's like, oh, she's actually like a princess or is like someone really important because then it's like, well, why is she like leading the warriors at the right? end? I, I um, guess my sense was is like, yeah, you're right. There's something missing that she's somehow connected to Merlin, like because mm-hmm. she's the one who leads Arthur to yeah. have the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And. Like, how I view her, and I think this is what a lot of people will say, is, like, I viewed her as Bodica, Like, not an actual Guinevere, yeah. but a Bodica sure. figure. Yeah. Other people pointed out to, like, Queen Med from Irish. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if that's history or myth. I Like, when we get into the Gaelic stuff, I'm in trouble, so. The other thing, we also have forgotten another name we've left out, is the historical consultant for this movie, who is a Mr. One John Matthews. I don't know if you looked into this guy oh he's he's a novelist and i'm just gonna come out and say everything i saw about this guy he's a dang ass freak he's just like a weird dude (laughs) he's published over 90 books on myth arthurian legend and grail studies and he's particularly him and his wife are into arthurian legend and quote esoteric celtic spirituality so okay that tracks <laughs> yeah like that sort of to me like explains a little bit the characters of guinevere and merlin esoteric celtic spirituality yeah well and that's why like the film almost felt like they had to give a whole different name to this group and like why i keep questions like aren't they all celts you have the very recognizable farmhand who i assume are also celts and then you've got the people hiding in the forest firing off barbed wire traps which i think was cool but like (laughs) again seemed very like they're people of the forest and i I was very yeah it's well it's that kind of like essentializing nativizing of Mm -hmm. the celts and other groups like in you know that we're gonna see in like avatar the james cameron avatar like that kind of like these people are spiritually in touch they're in touch with nature they live these like foresty lives and that kind of like primitivizes them well we don't really see them the woads which are just picks and they didn't want to call them that i guess yeah like we don't see them being normal they're always like in war paint in the forest like about to fight it's like where the just like normal people live 
And also a lot of the imagery and like the way it was framed, I think, was kind of taken particularly out of like Last of the Mohicans, yes. like when they're waiting in ambush for the Romans. Mm-hmm. It's like they're very much is this like unspoken like perceptions of like Native Americans or something. And again, that kind of like this like idea of like the noble savage or something like that is getting like projected on. And it sort of seems like from the scenes we get with like Merlin and like his council or whatever, it just sort of seems like when they're not ambushing people in the forest that the Celts just kind of like hang around campfires in the middle of the woods. Yeah. yeah. It's um and like the you got the added level of it when they get to the estate and as Elijah said, there's pagan jails. So they're like, okay, so they're pagans. So we have converted Britons. They work. Mm-hmm. And then you have pagan forest woods people. But then like I think there's a line from Merlin it's like when he's talking about Excalibur, it's like that was forged from the iron of our island. So it's like, so you have iron smelting, which suggests you're not just hanging out in the forest the whole time. <laughs> well, I think like even like famously, like the Gauls, I think like, and this is way back, like in pre-Roman times, like they're the ones who are, I think I, they were preeminent metalsmiths mm-hmm. and metal mm-hmm. workers. I think like chain mail yep. is like a Celtic invention. Like, again, I think it's a case of like our representation of Celtic peoples particularly in our Roman context, is like very much influenced by like North American, absolutely Native Americans. And even like you get it a little bit, I think, in like Braveheart, which I feel like is a movie we should have talked about a little bit more when we were talking about Gladiator, but like Braveheart is like very much in the DNA of this movie. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, just like the idea that they're fighting for freedom, which they say mm-hmm. a few times, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's like our freedom, like from Rome, our freedom from like, violence or like free to like make choices and Mm -hmm. uh yeah i didn't see that sort of in the context of braveheart before but i like it's all coming together now it's like this massive puzzle in my head yep (laughs) god i will say the other absolute favorite moment i have in this movie is with guinevere's character and i think it's because it's one of the first times which surprised me for a Disney movie. Like, there's two different occasions where, like, Conquest acknowledges the fact that women are raped. And, like, so my favorite mm-hmm. line is, like, Lancelot's like, there's a lot of lonely men out there. And Guinevere's quip is like, don't worry, I won't let them rape you. And, like, her very clearly saying rape. And I'm like, that was kind of mind-blowing for the time of this acknowledgement of, like, what is going to happen to the women? What's going to happen mm-hmm. to Guinevere if they're captured? And, like, just a very clear understanding of, like, yeah, that's what's going to happen. Um which I appreciated because it's so absent from so many of these films that that is what is going to happen to <laughs> either they're going to be raped or they're going to be killed because yeah the Saxons just want to obliterate everyone. Those are those are the options. I I found it like annoyingly quippy. <laughs> Two thoughts, which is like one, like shit like this is why we don't like you, Lancelot, because like what a crappy thing to say. But I was wondering, like, how does that joke land? I I don't know. I like. It seems kind of shocking because you're like, oh, mm-hmm. it like it kind of does sort of take you aback, I guess, which is maybe what they're mm-hmm. going for. But I I kind of like rolled my eyes, I guess. I was like, ah, it's it feels mm-hmm. too quippy. It feels that's totally fair. I think just the fact it happened is what blew my mind. It's like, oh, yeah. we're actually going to say it. All right. Yeah, we said the word. Yeah. <laughs> Again, like, this is a PG-13 movie. Also, when we first meet our villain, yeah. which maybe this is a segue for yeah. that, but when we first meet our villain, we, there is a attempted rape yep. scene, which, he, you know, is, is quickly thwarted, although it's not better. She just gets murdered. Yeah. 
and then Stellan Skarsgård, our, our Saxon, kind of espouses this like racial purity mm-hmm. thing. Which, Which is, apparently came from like the idea based on linguistics that there was an intermingling of Saxons and it's like that's been very disproven. But like so that they were yeah. kind of promoting the, and that's not to say that there weren't interactions like that that would happen where invading groups would come in and they would not in fact want to mix with indigenous populations, but um that would not be the case here, most likely. No. I also like that it was an Achilles moment. It's like, I, we have the right to war of spoils. And they're like, yes. they're like, that's like a, a nice little throwback to Achilles. For yeah. 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 That, that guy that died was, if Achilles was, was not as good at fighting. Right? Yeah. That would have been the Iliad's alternative. Shut up. And we're moving on. <laughs> so I mentioned this, like my, my dad's one takeaway from this movie that I can remember was that Stellan Skarsgård is basically the barbarian godfather. Cause that's like kind of the way he's playing it. He's like, we invade this island on this, the day of my daughter's wedding. <laughs> like he's so like whispery. Like that's his whole kind of, I mean, which I think is like, it was a choice. Like on yes. Skarsgård, because mm-hmm. Skarsgård also is an interesting villain choice sort of as well. Cause he's not like a, He's a tall guy, but he's, he's sort of like a middle-aged, sort of dopey Swedish guy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he was in Pirates oh, uh, right around this time. But... Yeah. I mean, he's – I'm trying to think what else. He, he was in, I mean, like Goodwill Hunting. He's Marvel. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, he's the Dr. Selvig. Yeah. In the American version of A Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, he's the the big bad guy. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I like him as the bad guy, actually. Mm-hmm. He's kind of like – I don't mind the whispery weirdness on a rewatch. I think I hated it when I first saw it. I was like, what the f*** is happening? Why am I scared of him? But I, I enjoyed it on the rewatch. It was a it was a different type of villain. I also, it, like, one thing I questioned. So, like, their goal of going to the estate to steal the son for a ransom makes sense. I can get on board with that. But Rome is retreating. The woads are in disarray if, in fact, all of them retreat. So once you no longer, once the ice battle happens and, okay, we lost the family, just sit tight for a while, let the Romans leave, and then take over what's left. Right? Don't take on a fortress. (laughs) Yeah, I, I don't really get what they were actually trying to do. They they existed to be antagonists. Yes. I I mean, because... As we sort of talked about, like it doesn't make any sense that they would invade north of the wall and when then... they could just land south of the wall. <laughs> yeah, and engage of just pillaging, just pillage for a while. Yeah, because when historically, like so, like as the Romans were sort of pulling out of Britain, the Saxons were moving in, and but it was not in Scotland; it was in East Anglia, in sort of Eastern England, and and you know they were just sort of taking over that way, and then they would eventually establish their kingdoms. But yeah. I lost my train of thought. Well, just that the enemy's motivations make no sense. <laughs> yeah. The ransom made sense. And, oh, and also, I was on board oh, with the ransom. Then it didn't make well, sense. Well, the ransom before. part, yes. But but yeah, so it's like, what do they want? I guess they want land because he says, like, kill every man, woman, and child who could ever, Everybody's like, pick sword. up a sword. Mm-hmm. So they want... Yeah. Are, are they there to settle this place? Because if so, doing it without women is would be an interesting strategy. <laughs> or are they there, are they there to pillage and just get money and then leave later? Are they there to make it their own? Like it's kind of unclear exactly what. There is a campaign that needs funding. 
but I don't know what that campaign is. Yeah, they, they're long-term yeah. goals. That implies that Cedric is paying his men. Which is interesting, actually. But not with women. That's a no. <laughs> so, yeah, like, it's part of it is just like they're just here to kill people. And I think someone says that at a point where it's like, Saxons only claim what they kill and they only kill everything. Yeah. So I, I guess they're here to take over. Although, again, the killing all human beings strategy is kind of a weird way to take over. Maybe but, their first know. wave and then the second wave is bringing the wives and children. Yeah. Possible. On there. I mm. do feel like once you hit the wall, it's like we could find a better strategy than just going through these mysteriously opening doors. <laughs> this was actually, I forgot. This was the thing that I have a hang up about, which is who is opening and closing those freaking doors? Who? who is there? <laughs> How are those doors magically <laughs> opening like and closing? Like, at one point earlier in the movie, they show them like having to get giant mallet hammers to like. Yeah. And like horses, like yeah. it's like a whole process to open the doors. It's like, you know, it's like King Kong Island. Yeah. No, I just, I feel like they would have made better strategic decisions about the wall, and that battle is just a bit odd. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, once they all, like, meet, you know, like, the action is there and it's happening, but just the, the way that the battle begins is just, doesn't really make Well, sense. yeah, so <laughs> the, 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 the wall open the door opens, and he's like, I'm going to send a, a small contingent through. Let's just see what happens to them. And those guys get chewed up. And then he's like, okay, now we'll just, the gate's open again. I'll just go through with the whole army. Because <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, like, I don't know. Like, there's there's so many. Okay, well, I didn't research this, but supposedly the source material for King Arthur, the only similarities to this film was, one, the Saxons, and two, the Battle of Badon Hill. Badon Hill? Yeah. That's, is that what this yeah, is supposed ba- ba- to be? Ba- and if so, this is supposed to be Baden okay. Hill, and they mention they, they somebody says yeah. Okay. I think point. I think in like the narration, Lancelot's like end of the movie narration, he says. But even that, like nobody exactly knows where Baden Hill is, and I mean, I think there's a couple of theories, and I think most of them are in like Eastern England. But would have been like if there was some kind of battle, because I think it's in some of the sort of early medieval texts that describe Arthur, like the earliest references mentioning like this British general. I think they, the word they use is actually Miles or something like that. Like he's like a soldier or something like that. And he leads the Britons against the Saxons at this battle of Baden Hill and like repels the Saxons, which is what this battle is supposed to be. I mean, again, this is the case of like in Braveheart where the battle of Sterling is supposed to be the battle of Sterling Bridge. Whereas like this is the battle of Baden Hill, but like, I don't like, I don't know where the hill is in this situation. <laughs> yeah. And, and it brings me back to the eternal question of what archaeological discoveries are they talking about? Like New I mean, archaeological discoveries, Christy, new ones. <laughs> Weren't you reading the open crawl? Like, is it, is it Hadrian's Wall? Is it Vindolanda? Is it a hill that might be Baden's? Just new archaeological discoveries. <laughs> I I know, yeah. So I was very and I like I, I think it they must be referring to stuff on Hadrian's wall because like why else have the wall really? Because there's no reference to that wall in Arthurian legend. It just looks cool. And at one point someone calls it the Great Wall. And it was in the subs that I was reading, it was capitalized and I kinda giggled over that fact. <laughs> No, I feel like saying new archaeological discoveries is just like a flashy thing to say. It's like nine out of ten dentists. Yeah. 
That's what it. killed me though this whole time. It's like, please don't don't try to rubber stamp this with archaeological yeah, don't discoveries. Drag archaeology into this. Well, I mean, in the scheme of life, even if this is an archaeological discovery from the seventies, in the scheme of the field, it's still kind oh, it's still of very new. <laughs> totally. See, and again, like, had it just been set mostly, and I'm just calling it Vindolanda, like they're playing knuckle bones. One thing I actually loved with the smashing of so much pottery made me happy. So much. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that's probably yeah. why I love the grate is every time they scream huzzah and throw down a glass and uh, that makes my archaeological heart so happy. <laughs> Haven't counted enough amphora shards in your life? No, I I have underleans to do that now. <laughs> oh, you're so fancy. <laughs> I've definitely washed more than enough. I've had like I still have to do that fun game of what's in the screen. All right, children, this is pottery. This is a rock. Oh yeah, no. well, yeah. You have to once you clean the rock and you confirm it is a rock. <laughs> no more screen. No more screen. But yes, pottery smashing. I I liked that. It was very cathartic for some reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, which brings me to in my picture, are there golden? Isn't that like a kylix or? That's a kylix. Yeah. yeah. Are there golden kylix? Is that a thing? Hmm. Yeah, Maybe I think they're like logical discovery, fancy and rare. And I feel like I don't know if it's a big Roman Britain thing, but you can oh, certainly I'm like find kylixes of various precious metals, like in the Greek world for sure. Oh. Just to be clear, we're talking about the cups that they're drinking yes. at around the round table, <laughs> <Yes>. right? Okay. <laughs> Just so I'm on board. That sort of wide, flat brim cup. Yeah, yeah. I've got a great example in the bottom right-hand corner of my background. Christy, we're doing an audio medium. (laughs) But watch the movie, and that's what it is. And I was trying to figure out if that was a real thing. Well, also, in the room with the round table, it's like Pompeian fourth style on the wall. (laughs) It's kind of funny. I was like, is that... Is that fourth style? What what's happening? <laughs> That's what I was trying to think too. Is like this is a very well made fortress, and I need to vi- visit Vindolanda to see. Like, I I think a lot of Roman forts really on the borders probably did not look this fancy. Yeah, this it looks it looks rather fancy, but I guess it depends on who who Designed. was there and like how long there was an occupation there, and maybe how much money they poured into it. <laughs> By the way, did you guys remember there was a video game of this also? What? No. Yes. It, Do tell. it released on PlayStation 2, Xbox, and GameCube in 2004. What was the, like, what were you doing? Um, it basically was a, apparently a playthrough of the movie, and you would get to, like, you'd go through different scenes, and you'd get to pick between two of the characters. And um, it had mixed reviews, but so did the film. And I think, generally speaking, the reviews for the video game were slightly better than the film itself. Interesting. Huh. That's like, it reminds me, I don't know if you remember, there was like a, a PlayStation game for the Lord of the Rings that was kind of like that. It's like you fight your way through the different battles in Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Those games were fantastic. Wild. I wonder if it was that. I'm like trying to find this now. I, yeah. There's a lot. I searched King Arthur game. I'm coming up with a yeah, lot of other. Add 2004 helps. Yeah, got it. Yeah, I meant to like look at a preview, but I'm just like, oh, there's a game also, and I remember the yeah. PlayStation too. <laughs> oh, weird. Yeah, you're right. I'm looking at screenshots, and it's just like that scene from the where they're attacking the like the wagon in the beginning. Wild. So I guess did you guys want to talk about the Ice Lake battle? Because I actually like that battle. I'm a fan. 
Yeah, we've been jumping around. We got to the end, but yeah, let's go back to the Ice Lake battle. It just what looked like the outside of my house. <laughs> 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 Sorry, I was just noticing that it's like really, really snowing yet again. No. It's like, oh man. So yeah, I felt I felt right at home <laughs> in this in this Ice Lake battle when they're walking across the lake. It's like, oh my god, spread out when like the like horses and the carts and like all the refugees i'm like spread out oh my god it was like giving me anxiety i'm sorry i'm a little distracted i'm looking at playstation 2 era (laughs) depictions of kira knightley and (laughs) it's it's something else (laughs) i actually watched a video i forget it's like a military historian specialist and he like reviews film battles all the time and he actually reviewed this one he said like actually this is almost legit in terms of like yeah having your your archers aim at the wings to make them cluster he's like Mm -hmm. i don't know like how often people are fighting on the lake but good strategy if that's certainly yeah (laughs) and then we came full circle for the last battle of having fire arrows once again like yeah yeah it's like you can't get away from it nope and I, i i was watching it and you know how like you have fire spread across the entire battlefield it's like it's so wet there is that really what happened I mean, if you put down, like, what, they had pitch and gross shit that they showed them putting around the battlefield, maybe. That's legit. But it's, I, I really question these fire arrow tactics because, it's like, that's also your agricultural land that you're going to catch on fire. And it seems like that's a bad true. idea. It's not a great idea. So, Ice Lake Battle, if it happens, looked plausible. Battle of the Baden Hill? No idea. Mm, not so much. Now, I liked the the way the ice broke up on the ice battle. It was really terrifying. It made me feel cold. Um, and I liked that, like, when he stopped and looked down, you could see the frozen face of the guy underneath the ice. Like, ah, oh, that was... Mm-hmm. We haven't mentioned, but yeah, Teal Schweiger as... Uh, Hugo Stieglitz, you mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. With his great, like, beard braid. Mm-hmm. I really like that design choice. I wish he had hair. I don't know. I like... The bearded braid but the the bald head i was like really i feel like every time i see him he's always got a shaved head yeah, but he doesn't have a shaved head and glorious yeah, he does really i think I he does he yeah pretty like a little bit if he does it's very short yeah but he looks so different he totally has hair in glorious bastards you're right he does my mistake <laughs> i just he he looks so different Part of it is also he's like he's like an extremely beautiful man. He has this almost like weirdly perfect face and bone structure. Yeah. But he looks really weird and ugly in this movie. He does. Personal opinion. <laughs> yeah, he is not attractive. But like, are enemies ever supposed to be attractive? Like, that's how we know we don't like them, right? Well, I don't know. Better they're there's coded some, there's queer. Some sexy, there's some sexy villains one or the out other. there. Only women get to be sexy villains. Uh, I did. Give me a second. I'm going to think of a sexy male antagonist. That, that is a queer. That's the other, no, other factor. Shadow and Bone. The Darkling is a sexy male antagonist. And he's pretty straight. Okay, I haven't seen that, so to be fair. He's played by... Ben um, Barnes. Yeah. Well, I'm talking like before... Killmonger. Okay. Uh, yeah. But yeah. Like Michael B. Jordan. Sexy All right. So like pre-2010. That's recent. Go back. Thank I mean, you. I think Hans Gruber is kind of sexy, but that's just me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know if, if uh, Alan Rickman doesn't do it for you, but 
what about like Johnny Lawrence in the Karate Kid? He's sexy, right? Uh, <laughs> I feel like a lot of a lot of 80, well, there's a subgenre of '80s films where like the antagonist is like a weirdly good-looking blonde guy. Yes, yes. That's a whole. That's a thing for sure. That's true. They they really just let the assholery shine through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's yeah. like you're like the trust fund kid. That's a that's, that's that is yep. fair. I will give you that. And I'm trying to think of like an action movie with like a sexy male, sexy straight male, or at least not queer coded male villain. Okay, Jeremy Irons. What's the? Don't say Scar. No, I I mean I picture Scar a lot, but he's definitely quoted coded as um, But he would be sexy for sure. Yes. What's the flight? What about Gaston? Like, they're on the. <laughs> he's coded queer too. Gaston. All right. <laughs> All right. I don't know. What's the movie with Jeremy Irons hijacks the plane and Harrison Ford is the president? <laughs> oh, Air Force One. Yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> Why couldn't I think of that? <laughs> I'm sorry. I think Jeremy Irons is sexy. I, I would have to look. Yeah, we all, like, we all think Jeremy Irons is sexy, Eli. Okay. That's not a controversial okay. take. <laughs> <laughs> Fine. I'm just saying, they're, like most of the time, especially when you, you have an army... Okay. They're yeah, ugly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just sounds very clear. Like all the Conan villains are like yes. re- real rough looking dudes. Yes, for sure. Although, case in point, Commodus. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's true. He's kind of sexy. He's he's coded psychopath, Freudian. I'm, but <laughs> like from you're you're saying Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah. yeah, he does not do it for me. Never has. But it's like I could see how he could like just the way that he acts in that movie makes it him so unappealing but i could see yeah. like he's not he's not i bad guess what we were saying like like commonest yeah like creepy mother yeah. but like joaquin phoenix is like an attractive man yes by most metrics yes <laughs> even though he may not do it for all of us <laughs> like no <laughs> Oh my God. Are we spinning out? What are we oh. about? <laughs> okay, oh we should probably we should probably find a way to wrap this up. Yeah, I know. Uh, Same. I do have like one final question slash Christianity at this point because I, I forget what even date are we at for four sixty something? I think. Okay. Are we very on board with Christianity now? Is that the by, thing? And, large, by and large? I think. Well, yeah. but but again, it's that issue of only if you're in the right club. Yeah, because you might be an Aryan Christian, in which case things might go sideways on you, or you're a Pelagian, or a um, uh, a Donatist, or you know, there's a lots, there's lots of like versions of the wrong Christianity. I'm mm-hmm. using air quotes for those listening at home. So by and large, most people, most Romans, most people in the Roman circumference, Goths, Vandals, probably not Saxons, but the Romano-British are probably Christian. Or some flavor of Christian at this point. Okay. Yep. Okay. I wanted to confirm that. And then what is this film saying about Christianity at the time then? Because to me, it's being equated with Rome. And at the end, Rome is like, this is horrible. I mean, I think it's like it keeps falling back on the like institution, like organized religion. Those are bad because they breed corruption and gatekeeping and strict hierarchies and, you know, oppressive worldviews like where the 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 Roman noble is all about like, no, like these people, like I am God's messenger and these people need to live and die for me because yeah. I am the word yeah. of God and says so says the Pope and he's God and things like that. Whereas like Arthur's flavor of Christianity where it's like help other people, all men are equal, that kind of stuff. Like that's good. 
Yeah, and the I think some of this seems to be sort of looking forward into more what we would normally call medieval Christianity mm-hmm. with like torture chambers for pagans. Yeah. <laughs> and like serfdom uh, and that sort of thing, which really does begin in late antiquity and that we sort of see the bones of that sort of start to solidify. But maybe uh, sort of think of late antiquity as a little bit more flexible in so many areas, just because there was this huge uh, like range and variation of flavor of Christianity that you could use. And even like what it meant to be Christian, like by the middle ages, like it very much schematizes into the, like the, you are, you are not like, you know, you are Christian or you're uh, one of the others, you know, you're Jewish or you're Muslim or you're like a pagan. Whereas like in the, like even like around Constantine's time and like the early fourth century getting into the fifth century, it's, it's more like, it seems it's kind of because it's being molded onto this kind of polytheistic bedrock and it's sort of unclear exactly like what it meant, like whereas people is sort of strictly devotional as we might understand it today or whether people had much looser understandings or it's like, is this just the new God we pray to? Yeah. Yeah. Which I actually was kind of, now that I think about it, um, a little bit of the way that Arthur kind of used his Christianity, right? Like when he, mm-hmm prayed to god it was very much like the quid pro quo relationship that you would maybe use in a pagan prayer of like i will like do x y and z if you allow x y and z to happen to me and my men so much of like like the church in this point and this kind of gets a little bit into like agora when we were watching that movie but like the church institutions themselves are really like in these intense negotiations of like what is the canon, what is orthodox and what is heterodox. And like, that's the thing, like Council of Nicaea is like trying to figure, like negotiate, like which gospels are in and which ones are heretical. Whereas like Pel- like Pelagius, like Arthur's guy is ultimately deemed heretical. Mm-hmm. And so like they're having these sort of power negotiations. And then as it's sort of figuring out its own, the structure that's going to take and like who's in, who's out. Yeah. So I guess that is appropriate for this time period for there to be clashing views on what is and what isn't appropriate Christianity. Mm-hmm. So it seems like this film did that pretty well then. Like, cause there was a the question of like, what is Roman? What is not Roman? And parallel to that was this question of what is faith in a lot of ways? What is Christianity and what is not Christianity? Mm-hmm. Okay. I was just curious. Cause like, this is the murky time. It's like, it's Romanesque. I kind of know what's going on, but I don't fully know what's going on anymore. <laughs> I don't think they knew what was going on anymore. So. <laughs> I kind of would have liked to see more smash-ups of, like, the pagan gods with... Because you get some really cool Celtic Roman gods, too, and things like that. So that would have been kind of fun to see. But, yeah, I, I think, thinking back to Agora, like, that's what I was wondering is, like, it's it's weird that you almost have these two messages going on. They, The film seemed to partner them together really strongly, and I was just trying to figure out if that was... Uh, the case at the time or not which makes sense for a lot of you know different cultures clashing religion and syncretism is is a big aspect of that so arguably this film did a good job of it like there's there's things that like probably if we get if we want to go in with a fine tooth comb like much of the costumes and wardrobe and and props are like oh probably a little ahistorical but like you know what at the end of the day 
don't really care. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> we, we don't need a council of Messiah here. I want to end on like something sort of like, what would you do kind of situation? I would make one or the other of these movies. Like I would make a King Arthur movie or a Sarmatian unit in the Roman army movie. I guess this comes into the question and this came up in sort of the last Legion talk where it's like, does it ha- is it marketable or like, do you need to tie it into like a pre-existing IP like King Arthur? Not that necessarily King Arthur's IP, but he's like a household name to sell tickets. Cause like, I think like the fact that this is like King Arthur who people are like, Ooh, King Arthur, like I've seen, you know, Camelot or whatever, like that's a name versus if you were like Sarmatians in Rome circa 460. Yeah. Not that that would necessarily be the title. <laughs> Um, yeah, because in my head it was like, I want Vindolanda. I just want that. And um, yeah. Christy, you're pitching a movie of just people like milling grain and like washing <laughs> and like doing very like mundane shit. I, like I what? know I keep doing that. And then that's I and especially because like this is you know this is a mythology, and I've been listening to a lot of the content on Atlantis and how like Atlantis is not a myth. It's an allegory. It's a myth. Not a myth. Okay. Plato's very upfront about right. the allegory. Yeah. But, <laughs> but there is this search, and we can blame Heinrich Schliemann for this. Or like We can love him for this, or we can blame him for this. But Heinrich Schliemann mm-hmm. took a book of a very old myth, and he's like, I bet this place is real. I bet I can find it. And damn it, he did. Most likely. Yeah. Which is hard to believe. And now everyone wants to do that with myth. And I, I think you're right. Can you really market this? Like it, It's very marketable. It's like the origins of Arthur. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah it's it's very appealing because we do want we want those those grains of truth in our myths to and i think especially in this era of hollywood there this is not the only movie like this is the true story of Mm -hmm. i I gotta stop whacking my mic when i talk (laughs) this is the true story of x y z or whatever like this is the you know this is this isn't your dad's history class or like whatever like this is what they taught you in school this is what actually happened and also it's metal <laughs> like that. I mean, I think that as like a selling point for movies has, has fallen out a little bit. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is just me, but like if they wanted to pitch a movie to Colin, it would be like, this is nothing like what happened. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's in fact better <laughs> because it's made up. <laughs> and then you can just like, you know, there's the Alexander romance. Just call it something like that. Yeah. This is, I think, maybe the fundamental divide between me and my co-host, which is I want the better fiction. I want the big fish version, which is like if I had the choice between a boring story about like somebody being late to the hospital or an exciting story about a fish and a wedding ring, I want the fish and the wedding ring. <laughs> I'm very like that was that's the same issue I have with like some of the myth retellings where they like they tried to ground it in reality. I was like, no, the myth is so bonkers and I love it. Yeah, Please just yeah. stick with that. I talk to my students a lot because like one of the early lectures in mythology courses when I teach is talking about different theories of myth. And one of the earliest theories goes even back to like the 300s BC with this guy Euhemerus. And Euhemerism is basically like it's all just history and we've just dressed it up. And students really like Euhemerism or something because it's kind of this easy – it's almost like it's an easy way out for myth or it's like – but I'm like – and then one of my students I think very smartly – was like 
I'm like, what's the problem? And she's like, it doesn't explain like why they're so weird and complex. <laughs> yeah. Which and I was like, yeah, I had a moment. I was like, yes, like that is like they are so. If it's just like a, another story about a king and his like shitty son or whatever, mm-hmm. like we don't need that. But like, why is there a then like why is there a myth about a guy who whacks two snakes and then changed from man into woman and then changes back when he whacks the snakes again? <laughs> like that doesn't like why is that myth stick around? And, I, you know, that's what we call fiction today, like um, just Atlantis again, like Atlantis is the basis for uh, Aquaman's world. And mm-hmm. I don't if you watch Young Titans, they this season did a background on like how Atlantis in the DC universe was formed. And it mm-hmm. involves what is Vandal Savage. Um, oh, right. The guy who lives forever. Yeah. And it's. <laughs> yeah really cool and i like you like do you know about this so so in the dc universe there's this character named vandal savage and i think the premise is that he's from like sumeria or something he's from like the first like he he was alive when neanderthals were still walking the earth he's he's like a caveman and Mm -hmm. he found like a magic comet or something like that and it made him immortal and he's basically been living forever and he's like behind the scenes of all this shit like like in you look in the background of like portraits of napoleon and like there's vandal savage or like (laughs) in like roman friezes like there's vandal savage he's just like behind the scenes and all historical events like he gave birth to um ishtar was one of his children and um yeah he's everywhere but but like Basically, he's just involved in this huge eugenics project where he's just trying to make the best version of humankind possible. And that involves the sinking of his son's amazing advanced civilization of Atlantis into the sea so they would turn into underwater people just so that Mm -hmm. they could further evolve into powerful beings. What? (laughs) See, and it's great, right? I I just like Googled it and... I love the imagery that I'm getting. You can't see it, but yeah. yeah. Oh, Vandal Savage is, yeah, he's a great villain. Uh, but I was thinking another even just like a problem with that kind of like humorist approach or something like that. I'm just kind of spinning off of my own gripes about like teaching mythology is like, if say like our civilization, you know, goes into decay and then 2000 years from now, somebody's digging up a bunch of Spider-Man comics and you were reading like Spider-Man and you did like a humorist approach on Spider-Man and then you read that, but you're like, we're like, no, that's not like maybe there's actual life events that might have inspired plot points in various Spider-Man storylines. Yeah. But like this not to say that there was ever like there was ever an actual living character that was in any way resembling Spider-Man or something like that. Like you're missing the point of <laughs> you're missing the point of Spider-Man. If and then they'll like, actually get video evidence of Spider-Man, like different versions oh, of God, Spider-Man. Yeah. And they're like, oh, obviously, look, he can physically do this. Bizarre. Oh, I don't even know how to wrap this up, guys. <laughs> uh, well, I think we're just going to have to like open these big gates and then let the Saxons in and then we'll, we'll deal with them then. Okay. That sounds good. <laughs> and Oh, and then we'll have a wedding. On a Disney note. You got to end on a Disney note. To, to quote Anton Foucault, which is, quote, I guess, uplifting. <laughs> but at least I guess Boar's the, like, final, like, one of the party lines, like, oh, now I'll have to marry your mother. Who says I'll have you? And I'm like, end. And I'm like, yes, that's where it needs yeah. to Yeah. I think Boar's, I think, positive male role model. <laughs> Was Boar's actually an early feminist? <laughs> In this essay, I will. <laughs> <laughs> we should end it right there. <laughs> okay well thanks for listening and bearing with us on another episode of movies we dig 
Uh, as usual, you can find us at moviesweedig.com. Follow us at, at @digmovies on Twitter. Uh, you can find our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, most other places where you get podcasts. Uh, and in the meantime, please like, review, and subscribe. It really helps us out a lot. Uh, and we'll see you back next week for another movie. So thank you and bye, everyone. Bye. bye.